Alrighty. Welcome to episode 60 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. Alright, so today we have a couple listener questions. And I thought the way that we would approach this is see if we can do the first one with enough time remaining. And if so, then we move on to a second one. And if not, then we just do two different episodes. These are basically case studies for other topics that we've done. So we have theory and then we have application. And usually when we're giving you the theory, we do do a little bit on application where we say something like, so this is what that might look like in your day-to-day life. But a lot of times that's not a lot. And a lot of times it's a very complex situation. Going through a drilled down case study is a great way to think through problem solving with that theory and show how it applies in action in real life. This one, honestly, also is really hopeful for me. I'm really excited about this. So this is someone writing in saying that they're in a long-term monogamous relationship. And after listening to our episode on consent, they did actually go and reorganize their finances to be less coercive, Wow! which I thought was fantastic. That's the kind of thing where you feel like if you just convince one person to do that, this was all worth it. The whole episode was worth it. Just put your arms up. You're like, go! Yeah, it's very exciting to see that you're actually changing people's lives on that on the ground, direct, actionable level. And for good. I'm going to go ahead and just say the financial structure because it may be relevant. They change to a system where I guess the person writing makes more money than the other member of the couple and they change their finances so they pay all the bills and then whatever's left over they split 50 50 into separate accounts instead of before they had their money and their partner had their money and they contributed to bills but they didn't necessarily have equal income on the back end of that and i thought that was fantastic well and it's awesome especially because it's the person that was in the position of power that recognized the issue and made the change. Like, that's great. Going forward, though, this person wants to open up their monogamous marriage and their partner does not. So the listener wants to open their marriage and the partner does not. So they're just, they're taking all of our stuff. They're (laughs) taking... Their concern is that there's still some power dynamics in play, one, which is that even though they're currently splitting the money this way, there's still the threat that if we then break up, you're no longer splitting the money this way. Right, there's there's still that, yeah, that... uh... There's a sort of going forward power dynamic. So the listener writes, my first question is, is it impossible to open a relationship in an ethical way when there are high stakes financial and child rearing considerations and one partner wants to stay monogamous? So they have kids, basically, mm-hmm. and they have other normally large expenses such as house, car, child care, daycare, food, and so on. And... Splitting up would be super stressful on both of us and our kids, not to mention it wouldn't be pleasant for either of us to explain to our monogamous-oriented family and friends why a marriage that was otherwise very strong ended. So they're adamant that they want to open up this relationship. That seems to be the case, yeah. They had a note early on that they just always thought that when you were with someone, you had to suppress all your interests in other people and that that couldn't be something that could be ethical. And they didn't realize how important it was to them to be with multiple people until 17 years into this relationship or so. And it's becoming more and more important as time goes on, which we've talked about Mm -hmm. before. You don't really notice it at the beginning because it's all a honeymoon phase. That's what the honeymoon phase does. 
<laughs> so the longer you go, the more you feel. And this sort of length of time is totally understandable that the listener wouldn't have even known that non-monogamy was an option when they were getting into this relationship. So they, it's like what I think is sort of the most powerful moment of the interview with my mom. I don't know if it's actually in the episodes or something that came out of me talking to her after those episodes, because there was a lot of back mm-hmm. and forth that came after those episodes where I was finally able to confront one element that were, you know, my mom was like, you know, I don't, I just don't understand why you decided to change all this about yourself. And I was like, I didn't change this about myself. I didn't know this was an option. You realized it. No one told me when I was a kid, you get to choose. And then I lied about what I wanted and then deceived everybody. I was told you get to be monogamous. It's the only option. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then I got older and realized there were other options. So it wasn't that I changed on you. I just legitimately didn't know that about myself. It's like you don't change on somebody if you discover you have like a heart condition right. or something. Like That's just a thing that the doctors find for you if you've always had it. How dare you change your health status? <laughs> well, here I'm thinking about something where like maybe you always had a heart right. murmur or something and just didn't know. It turns out that you've been living with it, but now it's diagnosed. Is that kind of scenario? I, I think that's what the listener feels is that they were always non-monogamous and they just didn't know that that was an option. So they did the best they could with what they could do. Now are realizing that that's just not what they want to do for the rest of their life and they don't want to stay stuck for the rest of their life in a relationship that that isn't meeting their needs and that isn't them. Most likely there are wants that are not being met as well because relationships grow and transition and change. And if they've been together for 17 years, you know, I'm sure both of them have wants that are different than they were 17 years ago. Their second concern is that they envision their partner would give them consent to date someone at some point, but that they'll be unenthusiastic about it and have insecurities and that the listener will be able to sense this from their partner. So then they noted that some models of consent include enthusiastic as an element, but that we did not include that. And I actually specifically went out of my way to say that I don't require that. But I think the models of enthusiastic consent are usually really focused on sexual Mm -hmm. consent. Yeah. Where this is more about the person consenting to let you live your life the way that you want to, which is always going to be scary and isn't necessarily something that you would expect the other person to be excited about if it isn't something that they want. And there is going to be insecurities. I mean, especially if you're opening up your relationship for the first time and exploring ethical non-monogamy, there's going to be insecurities. You're most likely going to hit jealous patches. And that's going to be something that the two of them are going to have to work through with any potential partners. So then they ask, is it ethical to apply a weaker model of consent in this case that doesn't have to be as robust or as enthusiastic because this consent has to do with the listener's autonomy as opposed to their partner's physical boundaries? So obviously, I'm never going to say you should apply a weaker model of consent. Yeah, that, that gave me an ick feeling. <laughs> not gonna lie. I think it's a language scenario. I don't think this listener, given all the things they've already changed about their life, which are big things to change, I think is... is looking weaker. Weaker. They mean weaker, like not enthusiastic. Yeah. In this case, that's the weaker version that yeah. they mean. As I said before, there's a lot of decisions in life which are very difficult. And sometimes the best decision is still a hard decision. And that's why I, I, I am really trepidatious about enthusiastic consent as a requirement for most things. Like sex, yes, sure. That's a very niche moment. People should be really excited about having sex. Yeah. If they're not excited about having sex, I don't know how you'd even want to have sex with them. Let's back that up and talk about it. Right. But for a lot of things, like taking a new job is probably going to be trepidation and consent. I'm never like 100% sure on yeah. anything in life. Everything's usually about 85%. So I don't know if you can, you can say that 85% is an enthusiastic 
Yes. And I think it's often less than that. I feel like I'm rolling the dice whenever I take a new job. Or yeah. You're just like, I hope it isn't awful. When I take on a new partner, a lot of times it's like 80, 85%. You know, if you've ever yeah, been absolutely. hurt before, yeah. <laughs> it's always a cautious yes. I've been hurt a bunch of times and I've learned that I can't know a person really before I start dating them. And even if I do know them before I start dating them, I don't know if the pheromones are going to work out. Right. And if the pheromones don't work out, I'm worried I'm going to lose a friend that I made first. So like if I actually have the opportunity yes, to spend yes. a year getting to know them and then I'm like, all right, let's date. I'm still like fingers crossed 60, 40. Yeah. So I don't think for most things, I don't think that the level of enthusiasm should be the ro- is is a measure of robustness. Right. So consent here means means as we said in our you know our so in our model informed is the first part so you want to make sure they know everything that they could know about the situation what's on offer on the table mm-hmm. non-coercive means that you have to do everything you can to minimize coercive elements in the situation which i think they're doing which it sounds like you are doing and then also they note that they think there's still going to be concerns once they split up because they have the higher income and they have to pay for kids and food and honestly i wouldn't be super worried about that because if you have children there's going to be child support that you have to pay and that's going to be based on the children's needs and how much you earn and I mean, if there's a higher earner in a divorce situation, the kids are going to still get support from you. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I see the I see the worry. Divorce sucks. I'm not saying that shouldn't be a concern. And you should be very realistic about what that will cost you. But it's going to cost you time with your children. It's going to cost yeah. you tons and tons of money. And it's going to cost you a lot of emotional drain. And That's not a consent question. That's not a coercive consent question. Right. Unless, obviously, I would not be threatening to buy the best lawyers in the state and take your partner to the cleaners if they don't right. go non-monogamous with you because that is clearly coercive setting them up for an emotional roller coaster above and beyond the minimum necessary for sure and i think obviously if you can just agree to what the divorce should look like so that you basically go to court sign the documents together and go home you know is a lot better than fighting it out i think that the best way to approach this though is to not bring divorce to the table at this point because they said in the email that they've not even approached their partner about this yet right no 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 they have oh and they don't want to it does not want to my partner had no idea that i felt this strongly and honestly neither did i until later now i am learning that i have this desire for non-monogamy and that it can in fact be a legitimate part of their identity over the past three months my partner and i have started talking about opening up our marriage i initiated the discussions bought a bunch of books and started listening to podcasts my partner has read opening up so far we've discussed that my wife is monogamous and is not at all interested in dating others i recently discovered that a friend of mine who I was very interested in but never pursued is also monogamous and has started dating someone else seriously. The listener threw that in to note that basically there's no one waiting in the wings for them right now. They have time to discuss and talk with their partner before they start looking for someone they'd be excited about. I guess this person had been exciting and maybe Mm -hmm. had been a pressure point, but then found out this third person wanted to be monogamous. Yeah, and that's important because they do have time to talk about it. They do. The partner does have time to, to do more research. The listener that wrote us has obviously for months had this in their head and has researched and has had the time to do all this. And now they, I know they had three months 
three months is sometimes not a lot on some people's calendars. You know, it's important that they allow their partner the same amount of time that they've had to get used to this idea. I think if it's important for them to to keep that partner in their lives. And I think like we've said before, it's important to know, you know, which is more important. Is it more important to keep that partner in your life or is it more important to explore that part of yourself or to to be true to that part of yourself? Right. So I guess we should do that as a sort of a stamp. So obviously our recommendation is always going to be start with really decide going in where your line in the sand is. Basically, I think three possible lines in the sand. One is the risk is so high here, it's not worth it. I'm just gonna stick with how things are rolling. The second option is I would like to talk with my partner about this. I would like them to be willing to talk to me about it. And if they're not even willing to talk to me about it and they break up with me over that, then that is acceptable. But in the end, if they aren't willing, then I just will stay monogamous. The eh, you tried. Well, and I don't know, that sounded a little bit like that wasn't like kind of like they didn't try enough or something. And mm-hmm. I think that for a lot of people, that's a very relevant place to be. Yeah, absolutely. I ha- could see being in a position where it was not worth losing the life that you'd built with the particular monogamous partner on the hope that non-monogamy is going to work out the way that you think it will. Because right. non-monogamy works for a lot of people. I think it does. Obviously, I wouldn't do this work if I didn't. It works for me. But not for everyone. But it works to everyone that I've met. It works very differently than they thought it would when they started. 100%. That with the exception of young kids that were always non-monogamous so like teenagers that i know that are like 20 21 now who never even thought about being monogamous because it was available to them to just be non-monogamous they kind of got what they thought they were going to get but i mean nobody even really got what they thought they were going to get in monogamy right so if you were monogamous and people told you here's what it's going to be it was never that never and it's the same thing everybody's non-monogamy is different so no one can prepare you for what your non-monogamy is going to look like so you might think it's going to be amazing and you know you're going to get a ton of partners really easily and maybe you'll only have two or three for the rest of your life you know it doesn't it's very different for different people mm-hmm. i think it's completely legitimate to decide in the end that you're not willing to cross that line if that's what comes to it absolutely so if your partner says in the end i will divorce you if you decide you want to be non-monogamous and you decide that's not worth it then i think that's fine and then obviously the third line is i need this in my life so bad and this is who i am and if i can't have it then i would rather start from zero again relationship wise which is not necessarily a bad thing either it might be a good thing because one of the things we do know is the listener notes that they're concerned about what this would do to the children to have the divorce or the non-monogamous parents. And one of the statistics you see all the time is children from relationships that stayed together for the children, despite being miserable, are worse off mentally and health-wise than parents that got divorced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of statistics people throw at you like, People from two-parent families do better than children of divorced families. Yeah. But it's even worse when you don't get divorced. All of my friends, and I've had a few, who had parents that stayed together for the marriage, like those were the most miserable relationships. I know my parents couldn't get divorced soon enough for me. So. Well, and not only that, but another interesting statistic that shows more about sort of how this weighs in is this, no matter when your parents get divorced, it's hard on you. And the later they get divorced, the harder it is on you, even if they're like adults. So even if you, the kids are adults and you're like 
32 when your parents get divorced. It's actually really hard on you. Yeah. And again, this is measured by how well adjusted and happy people are relative to the relationships of their parents. And so it's not a direct correlation. It's not like a 32 year old freaks out when their parents get divorced. It's more that they suddenly realize that they were miserable their whole childhoods and didn't have to be. Yeah. Like, wait, my parents hated each other the whole time and just stayed there for me? Yeah. It's bad. It's way worse. And also, it's kids are resilient. Yeah. You know, we learn, but like, we figure out that we've got two Christmases and two Thanksgivings now and two birthday parties and it's it just becomes every day. Whereas if you do that to a 32-year-old, what? Now, uh, ah, mind blown. You know, like... Right. And with the divorce, divorce rate hovering at 40%, it's not like they're going to be alone in their school anymore. It's right. not like they'll be alienated or weird. They're the weird kid. No, they're about half. It's cool. So Mandy, do you I mean, I know you have kids from is it from a previous marriage? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you got divorced after you had kids, right? Absolutely. And was that marriage always non-monogamous? Or no, my marriage that my kids came out of was monogamous, actually. Mm-hmm. I took a hiatus from non monogamy <laughs> because I thought I had to, because I thought I had to to have mm-hmm. like the white picket fence and the, the kids sure. and the dogs and, and things. So I ventured into a monogamous relationship that obviously didn't work because I'm not monogamous. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you didn't get divorced to be non monogamous, though. You got divorced. I got divorced because non-monogamy became an issue. How so? There was cheating on both sides. Okay, right. And so that's the other problem, of course, is that if you really want to be non-monogamous. You're going to be. And you're told you can't. Yeah. You might get resentful. It might eventually lead you to a place like cheating. And I think being very honest about what you want and sticking with whatever it is you really, really want, like we said. You have to be honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. Authenticity with yourself is the most important part of being ethical. If you think you really can live monogamously, if that's what the discussion comes out like, and you really want to stay with your partner no matter what, then I would say have the discussion, be patient, and say, this is what I really want, but if you don't want it, I can live with that as well. But I hope that you, you know, this is something that I I really need and I want to find a way to explore it that works, that we can do ethically. And I want to reiterate to give them time. Yeah, I'll give people a lot of time. I mean, you've been together for 17 years. Like a year is not a lot of time in a 17 year relationship, to be honest. Well, and the listener, how long has the listener been thinking about this? And how long has, you know, they've been researching and they've been reading books and podcasts and- And even at a subconscious level, listen, is noting that their whole life they wanted other people but they pushed it down right so at some level you've been thinking about this for 17 years and this is only three months in for the partner right even if their partner's been thinking about it actively as long as you have and even the same amount they really still haven't been thinking about it for nearly as much time as you've been thinking about it yeah be patient if you really want the relationship to work the listener is gonna need to be patient yeah and so we have some other skills we talked about before like setting turnaround deadlines that are livable for you So say like, hey, can we talk about this again in a month with these particular talking points? Like, how might this be possible? And then give them the time to think about it. And then when they get to that time, say, okay, checking in, are you feeling like you're ready to talk about this? Do you have any new information? If not, let's set another date to talk about it in two weeks. Time specific, consistent, livable distances between check-ins, not pressuring them and giving them the time they need to go through this. And there is a note here at the end that I totally agree with where they said they think that part of the insecurity for their partner comes from fear of the unknown and it seems impossible to expect they won't have some trepidation yeah 
Everybody that I know that opened a relationship had a lot of stress until after they actually saw their partner with someone else and it didn't affect their relationship. Yeah. Because of course, most jealousy is a fear of loss, as we talked about before. Mm -hmm. So the person is concerned that if you have this other partner, you won't be there to read the kids their bedtime books or you won't be there to do whatever it is you do for them, like give them massages Mm -hmm. or they'll lose some pivotal part of who you are. And then when you're off with someone else and you come back and nothing changes, in my experience with partners who were not open before we were dating, that was the moment. That that first time was super hard. Mm -hmm. That first relationship, I don't even just mean like the one time I went overnight the first time, but like the first relationship was really hard. But then as that relationship relationship worked itself out and there was no loss in the relationship that I have with my partner, then that really helped. And that's something that might be able to help with the trepidation is do the relationship contract thing where you sit down and say, what is it that you need and want from me? Let's get your needs, your boundaries and wants on a table. And then let's set up like, okay, well, we currently have one date a week. So if I can still find time for one date a week and Mm -hmm. to meet my pre-agreed upon obligations, I don't know how their household is set up. In my household, we each have different duties for the kids. So like bedtime is my thing and wake up is my thing. So I get the kids up, I get them ready for the day and I put them down at night. And if there's something in between that's not school, or whatever most of the time Liz is doing it so obviously it's a big thing for me to say oh I want to start dating somebody I'm not going to be here two nights a week would be a huge change yeah. that I would definitely need to talk to her about and make sure that I was if not not doing that like maybe I need to only do dates during the daytime but <laughs> if I am going to do you know nighttime dates that I trade labor somewhere else take the kids for some lunches or something so that my partner is not getting short end yeah. of the stick on that scenario and, and I don't think that I mean, I think it's very rare for a couple to, you know, make that move into ethical non-monogamy and one of the partners not be nervous about it. I think it's very rare both partners are like, woo, 100%, let's do this. I think that the listener is kind of in a normal place. Yeah, I think that is true. I I really think that that's, that's usually the case is it's one partner going, hey, what do you think about this? There's some kickback from the other partner. You talk about things and you you do eventually get there most of the time. Of course, it doesn't, again, doesn't work for everybody. So you don't necessarily get there together. Right. But like you were saying about the relationship contracts, if they've listened to other episodes, they've heard me push the relationship agreements book from Eric Cardo's. Pick it up. Do it. It's amazing. And it will help you open up your relationship. It's on our resources list at probablypoly.com. So if you go to probablypoly.com and click on resources, you can find those list of books. So you can find it there. It's especially helpful when you are sitting down, analyzing what you both need from a relationship, what you both want from a relationship, and where you both stand in that relationship. Yeah. So there's that other note that I wanted to circle back to about how both of their families are super actively monogamous and they feel like having to explain the divorce to them would be hard. I am not a big proponent of closeted relationships regardless. I think that's very difficult. And I think the idea that you think that it's going to be easier to explain living in a non-monogamous relationship (laughs) to your family than getting divorced and having a new non-monogamous relationship to your family. To be fair, I know you're against closeted relationships, but there is a great amount of people that that do still live ethically non-monogamous in the closet with their families. So I, you know... (sighs) 
I think it takes a very different sense of family than I have. Yeah. I stick by what I've said, which is I don't think you can have a relationship with someone where you're lying about a core part of who you are, like an authentic relationship. I don't know what you would call those bonds with people that you're simply lying to about the core of who you are that you don't trust with the core of who you are. I I don't know what you call that. But it's it's one of those things that we've we've talked about before, where if it's not if the blowback from being out with your family is so great, then, you know, it, it's that it's that comparison that we've talked about before in other episodes. They may be looking at their families disowning them or, you know, things like that, that they're just not prepared for yet. So, yeah, but my my note remains the same, which is if your family would disown you, then these are not people who actually care about you. Right. And I don't know what that is. I know that there's a lot of sort of this old school idea that family has is almost like a hierarchy, like a corporation, like family, like the the corporate family where you have the patriarch and you can be fired and hired. Yeah. And there's a structure of who's in charge and it's usually age-based but not always sometimes it's affluence or wealth-based and you're supposed to fall in line and toe the company line and i mean i don't know what this person's job is they've been together for this person for 17 years so i assume that they're at least my age which makes it hard for me to believe that they're dependent on their family and i feel like if they were given all the other power dynamics they've listed they probably would have noted that one so mm-hmm. i don't think that they're at risk of losing their jobs or something like that if their family finds out uh, which maybe they are and that's obviously a different scenario you need to be able to pay for your kids in your life you can't that's an oppressive dynamic that you're in in that case and you should be looking to get out of it but i do agree with your point where it is going to be just as difficult to have those conversations with your loved ones about coming out and and about ethical non-monogamy than it is divorce when i don't know what kind of relationship you you know listener or other listeners want with their kids but i am definitely firmly of the belief that if you are not being consistently honest with your kids and they find out that you have not been consistently honest with them one they won't be consistently honest with you and two they may not trust you and probably won't trust you right and if your kids are going to know that you're non-monogamous because it is ethical and it is acceptable and it is okay and maybe they won't know right away because obviously there's part of what the mom wants them to know and such but the kids are going to know eventually i don't know how you're not gonna like your family's not going to know maybe you have amazing secret keeping children that don't randomly i was say what are those stuff i know <laughs> i don't know what those kids are but they're not mine no and so i think you're signing yourself up for a ton of emotional labor to try and keep it a secret mm-hmm. either way i think it's honestly a lot easier to keep a secret for divorcing i feel like if you're into lying to your family this is going to be a really easy one we just weren't happy together anymore we just weren't meeting each other's needs because you're planning to have like a james bondian film noir level of lying to keep your kids and your family in the dark about your non-monogamous activities i think you can get through the divorce by lying (laughs) i think you'll be all right You wouldn't be the first person that lied about divorce. That doesn't seem like the biggest concern, honestly, if that's what both you and your partner want. Now, obviously, there's a concern for yourself there that the partner might want to blame you for everything and say they decided they need multiple people and basically slut shame you. Which sucks. And that is a legitimate concern. Sucks. I've been there. And that is definitely something that if you know both of the families are heavily monogamous is is going to work. Mm -hmm. It is going to work if that person decides to say they're only leaving me because I won't let them be with other people people i think that they're sex crazed maniacs and they tell your family that and they tell their family that 
Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but my house becomes a brothel when the sun goes down. Yeah. So I think that that is true. And that's another reason why I think you want to handle that narrative with your family and not hope that you can hide it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of dangers here you should be aware of as well. If you decide to do the monogamous, non-monogamous thing, depending, I don't know what state you live in and what the laws are in your state, and your partner's really not into it, and they can get proof that you've been with other people, that could potentially allow them to basically take everything yep. in a divorce if they wanted to. That's a very scary situation to be in legally. So again, you'd be a lot better off in that context having this discussion with your family, having this discussion with their family, because that would save you a lot if you actually did go to court and everyone could come in and go, yeah, we all knew that they were going to do this. It was talked about. Their partner was on board. They talked about it. They told us they were going to try it. It was in the open. We all knew this was happening. It was with everybody's consent. And then they decided they didn't like it it's very different if you decide to put this all in the closet it becomes a massive they said they said scenario when you decide to if it ever ends up going to court and you might be in the situation where your partner is very resentful where they felt like they didn't want to try this but decided to try it for you and then it didn't work out the way that they were hoping it would and they're willing to lie about all those things i don't know your situation well enough obviously i don't know your partner and what they would and would not do i do know that a lot of times you can get legal agreements written up where you can go to lawyers and basically say this is what we're going to do this will not be considered breach of our marriage contract and get everyone to agree to that sort of stuff so there are protections that you can take if you decide to go the secret route and your partner is on board with trying or at least claims to be but they're very difficult i think those are very trying i don't think a lot of people feel comfortable right at signing an agreement well a lot of people would be upset that you'd want them to sign right. an agreement like that. Like, what? You don't trust me? And this is the problem with being clandestine. It's just the... My issue with being dishonest has nothing to do with there being a moral implication to being dishonest. It's just harder. It's just worse. And it allows you to maintain toxic relationships that you don't even realize are toxic because you're lying about the core elements of those relationships. Yes. So I don't do it because it's just not successful approach to living an authentic life that's lower stress where you know what's actually happening and where you're on the same page as the people in your family yeah i would agree to the original question then is it impossible to open a relationship in an ethical way where there are high stakes financial child rearing considerations and one partner wants to stay monogamous what? does the one partner want to stay monogamous or do they want the whole relationship to stay monogamous I assume that this means this partner wants everyone okay. to be monogamous not just themselves well and we talked about some people identify as being monogamous in poly relationships and some people would say that you're not monogamous if your partner is polyamorous because I mean the definition of monogamy is two people together forever with nobody else mm -hmm. so you're not doing that right if one of your partners is polyamorous but it is such a common usage in polyamorous discourse to say i'm a monogamous partner that we're going to use that mm -hmm. language so when one of the partners wants the whole relationship to be monogamous wants everyone to be monogamous it may be impossible to open that relationship but it's not unethical to become non-monogamous yourself while that relationship is what will end up be ending yeah you can't force a person to stay with you while you decide to be non-monogamous. It becomes a question of relationship fit. You may no longer have a relationship that serves the needs of the two individuals in it. If you feel like this is important enough to lose that existing relationship for, and the other person is not willing to meet you halfway or work with you, then 
the relationship may be at the point where it's natural for it to end for the benefit of both of the people that are involved in it. Because if you you stay, there's going to be resentment. Everything's just going to get worse. It's just, yeah. I mean, you can stay if when you look at everything, you go, I'm happier here than I would be if I was non-monogamous. Then you can stay. But I think that it sounds like the listeners at that point where that's not the case anymore. Yeah, probably. But well, this is for them and other people who are asking similar questions. But but I think the soul searching is a huge part of it for me. I would want to be 100% sure that I was at that point. Oh, yeah. So take time for yourself, too. Take another few months to really crank through where you are on the I can't handle being monogamous anymore scenario. Yeah. But I don't think it's unethical to be who you are or ask that your needs be met. Yeah, I think I think is if the listener and their partner go the divorce route because they they make that decision that it's it's more important for them to live, you know, their true person. I would just urge them to to keep in mind their their continuing power dynamic and their continuing privilege in the relationship through the divorce. Depending on where they are, if one of the partners is non-monogamous, that actually going to make a new power dynamic because the other partner could leverage them against that against them. Mm-hmm. So it might even be a thing where there's something that you can do to solve both power dynamics early on in the divorce, like say well, let's put in the divorce that I already know that you're non-monogamous, that that does, isn't going to be considered a problem right. in any divorce proceedings. And I basically waive my right to that. And then you guarantee whatever the amount of money that we think is fair for the kids needs yeah. as balance, you know, and then both those power dynamics get to, you know, get to be resolved in a way where you know what's happening and it's not a scary what if maybe yeah. scenario floating in space. I, I, yeah, that that would be the only, my only urge while they're going through the divorce is to just continuously keep in mind that power dynamic dynamic that still exists, obviously, if they want to do this ethically and kindly. Yeah. And there's another line that I really struck me where they write, anyway, from my partner's perspective, they would have to choose to accept a monopoly dynamic that they aren't enthused about and rightly so because it doesn't benefit them as much as it benefits me or dealing with a stressful change in your relationship. So again, I would I would frame that differently. I would frame that as you've always been non-monogamous. You didn't know that about yourself, but you've always been non-monogamous. And it's not about which of you it benefits. It is to both of your benefits to not be in a relationship that is full of resentment and pain, for sure. And again, it's not a stressful change in your relationship because this stressor has existed in some way in your relationship and always been there at some level. It just isn't a stressor that they've had to deal with directly mm-hmm. if that makes sense they are dealing with something new but it isn't really a change it's again this is the thing that i'm always about when i talk about honesty you're not changing or creating new information you discovered something that was always true and you're simply laying that truth bare for your partner and i don't think you should feel guilty about doing that or about bringing who you are to the table in the same way that you wouldn't feel guilty if say your partner got in a terrible car accident and you had to do a lot of work to help them recover yeah you would not be like well i absolutely did not ask to be married to somebody who'd been in a car accident i mean a huge part of all relationships is working through how we change as people as we age and how we learn about ourselves as we age and difficulties and changes that might come up. This is one of those. And I don't think, I think it's very mononormative to think that it's an unfair one to have the sense that, oh, well, this isn't one people are supposed to have to deal with. I mean, none of them are, right? We all want a healthy relationship with people who want the same things with healthy children where nothing goes wrong. And very few of us, very few people get that. Yeah. (laughs) 
And if your partner gets chronically ill, you help with that. And you don't say, I did not sign on to be with a chronically ill person. Yeah. I mean, you might, but that would be when the relationship would end for sure. But I wouldn't blame the chronically ill person in that case. So let's see. Summary stuff for this one. Give them time was a big note. Yeah. Give yourself time. Be very sure about where you want your boundaries and your needs and your line in the sand to be. Set reasonable check-in times every few weeks, every month or something so that you can be working on the problem, but there's not pressure to come to the answer necessarily, but also so that it doesn't become one of those things where people use the, well, we'll talk about it later to never talk about it right. as, a, as a way to sort of push it off into infinity. Continue to focus on and neutralize power dynamics. There are power dynamics for being the mononormative member going through a divorce. There are power dynamics for being the member that has more money going through a divorce or staying together. Be aware of how dangerous that is if you decide to do it in secret and what that could mean if your partner decides that they don't want to agree anymore. Right. I'm not saying you have to tell your families, obviously, but consider what kind of relationship you currently have with your family. You know, I know a lot of people who are like, my sister's my best friend. You should probably tell your sister then. <laughs> and they don't know something that's this core of your identity. She's not your best friend. So consider what dynamic you have. If you have a transactional relationship with your family, then by all means, I guess, continue lying to them. That makes sense. Well, if that's what they're signed on for, it's not even necessarily like a problem. I'm not necessarily saying it's unethical. I know that there are definitely families that, again, are in many ways structured just like jobs I've had, mm-hmm. where you have family obligations that you have to do, and then there's benefits for being in the family. And that's not the kind of family I've ever wanted. And it's not based on authentic individual interpersonal relationships, but it does benefit you the same way that jobs do. Yeah. So just like with a job where we have always said definitely lie to your employer so you don't get fired, I would also go with lie to your family so you don't get family fired if that's the kind of family that you've got. <laughs> Mandy's giggling hard but quiet for some reason. I don't know why that joke she didn't, there we go, didn't feel like she could laugh at. I just, I've recently been family fired from a couple of family members so, and so it was just funny. Yeah. I've never heard of family fired. I was kicked out. <laughs> yeah. It's just fired. It just makes me giggle. Yeah, they like to make it sound like it's more important than it is by saying you were kicked right. out. Well, it's not a magical club, guys. Well, and that's that was kind of my response is they make it sound like it's more important. It's way more yeah. important for them for me to be part of the family than it was for me anyway. <laughs> Because that's the other thing is I don't know what kind of non-monogamy you're looking at, but if you're talking about having in the email, it says poly, you know, so interconnected love, yeah. long-term relationships. We're not just talking about hookups and, and yeah. Not hookups, not swinging, you know, I mean, also maybe that, but also some very interconnected relationships. Yeah. I'm going to be surprised if some of the people that want have emotional long-term relationships with you don't want right. your family to know they exist and are okay with you coming to literally no holidays ever because you'll always have to go to family holidays never meeting their family, yeah. never meeting your family. That's a rough sell. A lot of people are much more into you going, my family disowned me for being poly than they are for going, yeah. you're going to be a secret. I'm not, I'm not I'm not keen on being anybody's dirty little secret. So. That's a hard sell for a lot of people. And especially hard in this, you're going to be a secret for my kids. You're going to be a secret for my family. My partner doesn't like the idea that I'm polyamorous, but accepts it because they have to to stay in a relationship with me. You are going to be hard pressed to get good dates with that yeah. as your layout. You know, maybe I'm being wrong, but it sounds like from what I've read, that's what you're envisioning your polyamory is going to be like. And it happens. 
it, it, I mean, people do date that way. I've, I've met people that date that way. They're successful. I know that it happens, but it's not the kind of thing that most people that in my community would be willing to do. And yeah. Mandy's also shaking her head vigorously. Yeah. It's, no. the, I mean, I, I like you have seen it, but it's, it only works very few and far between. Well, to be fair, I've only ever seen it reported by people. Like I've never actually witnessed it working oh. myself. I've only met people at conferences or whatever that go, well, that's how I do it. And I'm just fine. And I'm like, Okay, yeah. I assume you're not lying to me, but I don't know. I I have a friend that I know on a fairly close level, and she is a relationship anarchist, and she's solo polys, and she doesn't care to be... She has her own life and her own bubble, and she doesn't really care to be part of her, any of her partner's bubbles. They just kind of come in and be part of her bubble. But does she date people who are like where she's ever their secret to everybody else? I don't think that they're a secret to her metas, to their partners, but um, I would imagine to their families, it's a, quite a possibility just because. She, but you don't know, though. No, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I'd, be, sure. I'd be very curious to ask them because even people that I know who are relationship anarchists who don't care to be part of your bubble often do see it as a warning sign that you're totally lying to everyone else yeah. about them. Well, because if they're going to lie about you to everybody else, what are they lying to you about about everybody else? You know what I mean? Like, Wait, if you think that everyone important in your life can be lied to if it makes the relationship easier. Then you're probably going to get lied to. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a good indicator about how I'm going to be treated in this relationship, yeah. for sure. I don't know that I want to be in that pool of important people to get lied to. So <laughs> Yeah, so even Mandy doesn't really yeah. seem to directly know anybody that's successfully doing I have not that. witnessed it firsthand, Stick. no. Right. So we meet a lot of people that say they're doing it, and we have to take them at their word that they are doing it. We don't want to call a whole community of people a liar, but we've never seen it. But still, a few and far between, do we hear about it? Yeah, that's true. It's like one person per room. Yeah. We've got 30 people in a room I'm talking to. One person is is identifying that way. Right. Every second or third session, not even every right. session. So it's not the most common way to be. And like anything, the less common it is, the harder it is for you to connect that way. Because there's a reason it's less common. All right. So other important elements. Go buy the book. It yeah, go go get the relationship agreements book. Do not use a weaker version of consent. You need to use the most robust version of consent you can use, but you have to understand that you can only consent to meeting your partner's needs or not. Your partner cannot consent to you being who you are. Yeah. That's not a consent issue. That's who you are. So all you can do is provide for your partner who you are, and then they can consent to be in a relationship with who you are, or they can decide they don't want to be in that relationship. And the who you are is up to you. As we said, the three options. I am totally willing to stay monogamous and not even talk about this. I am only willing to stay monogamous if you'll let me constantly ask you about it. And I am at a certain point not willing to stay monogamous for any reason. But that's for you to decide, not for your partner to decide. Yeah, and we don't think that really enthusiastic consent applies. Yeah, it applies to sex to sex. <laughs> applies to, to, to sex. having sex yeah. with someone. That's when enthusiastic consent is a is a must. It's a great must for sex. I'd say physical. It's physical consent. Yeah. 
because kissing and stuff like that falls in there too. So technically sexual includes kissing and the whole range of human sexual activities. So I, I got stopped when you said physical consent because like I hate getting shots and then my consent for shots is never enthusiastic, but I need them to live. Oh. So like I definitely go to the doctor and I'm like, yeah. But like I don't give, me the, give people give hugs it, okay. unless they're like excited to give me a hug. Sure, sure. You know what yeah, I mean? Like sure. any kind of touch. Interpersonal physical yeah. contact touch. Yeah, I got you. Like relationship contact. Yeah. Should be enthusiastic. It's going to be physical. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. That's that's good. Um, although I don't know. That's a weird one, too. I used to be a shy <laughs> hugger. I, I, would, I never touched anybody, you know? And so I was like, I don't know how hugs work. And I was always really awkward and not sure. But I also really appreciated it. Like, I don't I don't hug somebody unless their arms are up to hug me, too. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm saying, though. Like, I learned to be a hugger by people hugging me. Oh, yeah. I just wouldn't have hugged you. <laughs> I'm, I, I know. I know. But I'm a very, but again, that's why I think, that's why I think enthusiastic is overrated. Maybe that's just me. Like, I'm very not sure of a lot of things. Like, I'm not, yeah. and I have friends that are not sure of a lot of things. Like, especially some neurotypical friends mm-hmm. of mine are, are never going to be enthusiastic about anything they haven't done before or that they're learning to do. It's just, it was never going to happen. And I think you have to still value their consent. So, like, when someone would say, like, do you like hugs? I, I'll go. I used to go. Now I'm like, yeah, hugs. Great. But I used to be like, um, I would like a hug. Yeah. Yes. My, my, and it doesn't. <laughs> my nephew is um, neuroatypical and I'll ask him, you know, can I hug you? And he'll go, uh, yeah. I'm like, are you sure, baby? You know, like I'll, I'll just, I get mm-hmm. that reassurance. Yes. Are you sure? Yes. It's still not enthusiastic though. It's still like, yes. Are you sure? Yes. Yeah. I just want to make sure he's sure. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. They should be sure. Yeah. I want a robust sense of consent. So that double check, that are you sure, it's okay if you don't want to hug me, I won't be mad at you if you don't hug me. All those kind of clarifiers are great. So like robust consent is like 100% consent, whereas enthusiastic is like 110% in. (laughs) Well, yeah, enthusiastic just means that they're excited about what's about to happen and they know that it's good. And so that's definitely like a great physical bar. If someone is enthusiastic, you're definitely fine. Yeah enthusiastic hug is like hey can i hug you and they jump you as opposed to go yeah you can hug me (laughs) yeah but i think there's just a lot of people especially on like the gray sexual scale Mm -hmm. for which a lot of physical things are rarely if ever going to be enthusiastic yeah but they're still very sure of themselves like i am sure that this is what i want to consent to even though i'm confused or uncomfortable right now i'm sure that i want it but the point is it isn't even their consent right It doesn't even matter because it's not their consent we're talking about. Right. They get to decide what they want to do with the reality that they're presented. With themselves. Yeah. Right. So don't cheat on them. That's not giving them consent. Don't create coercive scenarios with the desire to trap them. Ask them, are there things I could do to make this more of a real decision for you? But the decision for them should be staying with you or not. Not whether you get to be polyamorous or not. Right. I agree with that 100%. That's a decision for you. And that's not a consent question for them. And so then, yes, it is ethical to open yourself up to being polyamorous, even if you're in a monogamous relationship, as long as you talk to the person, inform them to basically you get informed consent on whether or not what they want is to break up with you first or to let you be polyamorous before you do something. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, if you break the rules you agreed to, if you agreed to monogamy and you break those rules without ending that relationship first, that's unethical. That's right. 
uh, non-consensual non-monogamy. So that's where the consent is, though. The consent is in being in a relationship with a non-monogamous. It is not yeah. in whether or not you are non-monogamous. And I want to I want to applaud the listener for trying to go about this as ethical as possible. You've already done some amazing steps. I'm so impressed. Yeah, it's really great to hear this this kind of question, this kind of feedback. So I mean, yeah, it's that's it's really awesome. And we, we really hope that we helped and we're so glad to be able to participate with this. I mean, this is like a two page email and they apologize for being long winded. Don't guys don't apologize for being long winded when you write <laughs> You'll me. There's, never there's ever no be way more than for Michael. you to tell me. Yeah, I, was, uh, I get up here and I talk to you for an hour. <laughs> By the way, these episodes that are 45 minutes to an hour are like an hour and a half to two hours of curated content. <gasps> So I've cut out all, I don't even breathe. If you listen carefully, you won't hear me breathe in most episodes because I cut out all the breathing to get more words per minute in. Like you're listening to thousands of words per minute per episode. And you're like, I'm sorry, I sent you a page to describe this situation. I love your, no, that was I love your like, I wish I could talk more. Is there any way I can cut out my breathing? <laughs> it's just airspace, it's just literal airspace. airspace. We don't need more it. Words we could have put more information in there. <laughs> but I yeah, feel absolutely. like like in real life when you're having conversations, you think about that. Is there any way I can just breathe later and get more words in right now in this conversation? <laughs> yeah, don't worry about that. I mean, this is really helpful, as you've noticed from a lot of our questions when we respond. We're like, we're just making up half of this because we don't have nearly enough information. But we've actually eventually gone through pretty much every part of this letter and referenced it at some point. Like at first I was like, here's the cliff notes. And then we were like, wait, where's this? Where's this? Where's this? Yeah. So I think that that's... That's very helpful. I really do hope that that you can work it out. I know an incredibly large number of very successful monopoly relationships. That is very common, I think, that someone polyamorous is dating is is mono. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, we didn't touch on this, but, uh, you know, if you really want the the relationship to work, see if you can find a poly-friendly therapist. We we always say that, but yeah. That they're available. There's a lot of polytherapy I mean, sorry, poly-friendly therapists that do telemedicine, that can do, um, you know, like uh, web chats and stuff. And especially yeah. right now, because of the pandemic, a lot of states, normally you can't do therapy across state lines. You can right now, yeah. A lot of states can. The states have to have individual agreements with the state that they're doing it. So, like, not every state can go to every state, but, like, North and South Carolina are interlinked right now, and a lot of states are interlinked. Yeah. So most states will let you do that to most states right now, which is an amazing opportunity. So you can find anybody anywhere that's a poly-friendly therapist and probably get them to be able to do therapy for you. If it's actually therapy, it's covered by your insurance. So it's probably like $5 copay. Yeah. I wish I, I, I didn't even think about saying that earlier in the podcast, but that's, you know, like I said, if you really want this relationship to work, go to therapy. And e- even even if you give up on it, you're going to need therapy through the divorce. So find you a good therapist. Because I mean, realistically, the more direct third party help you can get navigating these waters the better and that's exactly what a poly-friendly relationship therapist is trained for Mm -hmm. yeah i think that supersedes everything find you a good therapist (laughs) ignore the rest of our advice get a therapist no just kidding (laughs) i mean i mean take the rest of our advice now the the other advice is all good just also get a therapist yes yes that's really important to help you implement all the advice that we've suggested, basically. Mm-hmm. And if you if you need one in your state or if you need helping help finding one, um, hit us up 
I, I know I have some resources for polyfriendly therapists here in the Georgia area, and I do have some in other states as well. I mean, you can also Google like polyfriendly therapist Google list, it, yeah. and there's like three or four lists right on the top that are common correlated lists of mm-hmm. poly people that wanted to represent themselves as polyfriendly therapists. So yeah, Google is probably a better resource than Mandy is. Anyway. Well, at least faster. You'll have it immediately to call some people and see how it goes. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! I feel attacked. No, no. I mean, I just it's immediate. Like you'll just be calling the actual person yeah. instead of calling us waiting for reply then calling the people right yeah so i hope it works out for you i do i guess i didn't do any of this i do want to say like obviously i think your position that this is hard for your partner is very accurate and i think that that empathy and that understanding of the difficulty that they're going through dealing with this is very very helpful you know i i respond oftentimes almost automatically it's sort of like a hey don't feel bad yourself level but i do think that that um, being able to see the other person's perspective is very helpful for keeping up the necessary patience to help them through what is a very long process of coming to understand where you're coming from and why what you're doing is not an attack on them or telling them that they're less than or wanting to get out of the relationship or saying they're not you know good enough or There's a lot of difficult things that they're going to have to process to make this work. And I I think that empathy and concern for them is great. I think it's wonderful and I think it's something that you should have for a partner who's going through something that's difficult. Because I don't think you're doing it to them. I still think it's difficult. Thank you so much. And, you know, if you have any questions, listener, particular listener after this or anyone else for that matter please feel free to hit us up if you guys don't remember we have the individual emails that are just our names at probablypoly.com so you can email mandy at probablypoly.com if you want those resources or you have a follow-up question for something mandy specifically said since she's gone through a non-monogamy related divorce for instance that's a very specific life experience that i can't I can't offer you or write me back again at michael at probablypoly.com for clarifiers on any questions you might have. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening tonight, today, in the morning, whenever you listen to us. (laughs) Have a wonderful evening, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you.